0: Belgium presents. The core idea of working in a restaurant and being a cook, your feelings don't matter. Like, not only your emotional feelings, but your physical ones. Like, if you burn yourself, you just keep working. If you cut yourself, you wrap a rag around it and you keep working. Like, you don't stop to feel. You don't stop to think, oh, how, how does this make me feel?
1: Samin Nosrat started her career in one of the most famous kitchens in the world, Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. Now you might know her as the writer and author of the popular cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And sure, there are a lot of chefs who also publish cookbooks. But for Samin, this was about an identity shift. She wanted to go from the culinary world to the writing world. But first, she had to confront her fear of pushing the reset button. I'm Ann Friedman, and this is Going Through It, a show about how hard it can be to figure out when to quit and when to keep going. On this episode, how do you learn to stop saying yes to other people and start saying yes to yourself?
0: It's hard to say no. You know, for a long time in my office, I had this little index card that I wrote, say yes to no. <laughs> if you're saying yes to everything— Then you can't focus on anything. As a sort of professional people pleaser (laughs) and lifelong people pleaser, that is what I come up against all the time. So now you've been
1: a chef for 20 years. You've worked in a bunch of different acclaimed restaurants and
0: in like food startups. You've written a book about cooking. How did you start out? I sort of accidentally became a cook, it was never my goal. Why not? I always wanted to be a writer, and I sort of stumbled into kitchens at a point where I realized I needed some sort of skill that I could make money off of, and it was really enchanting and inspiring the way that it happened, so I started cooking, and I loved it, and it gave me a great community and something I could care about and work hard on, but I at no point saw the, like, arc of my life leading me, you know, through restaurants and to chefery.
1: But you've had this really impressive restaurant career, and it was kind of, Always impressive from the beginning. I mean, you got your start at Chez Panisse, which is a place that I have always wanted to eat. And I think a lot of people have always wanted to eat. And then later on, you took a risk working at this restaurant in Berkeley that a friend of yours was opening called Eccolo. Tell me about Ecolo.
0: It, the The chef who opened the restaurant, Chris, was my mentor. And he'd really given me my first chance earlier in my career. And I felt very loyal to him. And I was excited to go work for him because I had just come back from living in Italy, and he was cooking Italian food. And I was so just, you know, excited to go have freedom there and be given responsibility and chance to grow. But it became apparent pretty quickly in the lifespan of that restaurant that we were fighting an uphill battle for way too many reasons. And I wanted to quit so many—I did quit. I was like also had bad temper, and I was quitting all the time. (laughs) coming back me, the next day. Tell me tell me about one
1: of the days when you like tried to quit.
0: <laughs> there was a big fight over parmesan cheese. <laughs> Only in Wait, my group. What? <laughs> it's called red cow parmesan cheese and it's um made with the milk from the vaquerose, which is a breed of cows who basically were the original parmesan cows and they don't produce a lot of milk. You know, modern breeds produce a lot more milk, but their milk is exquisitely fatty and full of amino acids which become umami. So Parmesan cheese made with the milk of red cows is like the original Parmesan. And I wanted to live in a world where I could buy (laughs) the most exquisite Parmesan cheese, you know? (laughs) And not the $8.99 stuff, who, who who knows where it was made. But compared to the prices that the people who owned this restaurant saw, you know, their other restaurants spending, they're like, well, we get Parmesan cheese for, I don't know, whatever, a pound, $8 a pound. Why are you spending twice that? We all go through this thing where we're sort of have to be broken out of our idealistic um, fairyland vision of what a restaurant is. And then we, we sort of come against the wall of reality of what it is to have a restaurant. Can you pinpoint the beginning of the end? little things just started being taken away from us. You know, like, first it was the the discount for eating at the restaurant went from four people to two people. That just felt like, I don't know, some indignity. And the way we would find out was these notes on the bulletin board. <laughs> and I was like, they, what, you're not even going to tell us, you know? <laughs> and then after that, um, I think the next thing to be taken away was the, like, shift drink, that, like, we couldn't get a mm-hmm. glass of wine or a beer or something. And... These were all, like, cost-cutting measures, but to me, they felt like they were (sighs) hurting the culture of the place. They are like, why should we be giving you drinks when you guys are not, like, bringing in any money? And I was like, well, that's not a way to get people to feel like they're invested in a place. Now it's so clear to me, like, I would never work in a place or create a workplace where that generosity wasn't built in.
1: I mean, yeah, you totally, you have
0: these standards. I hear that. But was there something else at play? Well, eventually, after about a year and a half, I sort of became in charge of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I was maybe at that point 24 or 25. And being a good cook doesn't mean you're going to be a good teacher or a good manager. Being a good cook means you'll get promoted to the next station and then eventually to a managerial role. But there's rarely, if ever, any managerial training. And so I didn't have any tools to be in charge of the people below me. And I had never been taught mm. how to wield that power. And frankly, like, I was a brown, young brown woman <laughs> in charge of mm-hmm. mostly, like, slightly older white men. So, like, in this very sort of fast-paced, very stressful environment, it was really hard for me to figure out ways to assert myself without resorting to, to anger. You know, like a lot of kitchens, like the Gordon Ramsay trope is like the throwing and the yelling and the like you know, cursing and stuff. I wasn't that kind of angry. I was much more passive aggressive.
1: Like what's what kind of stuff would you do when you were when you were upset in the kitchen?
0: Oh my god, there were there were entire employees who like once they once I realized they were hopeless and they were never <laughs> gonna listen to me, I just couldn't even look at them anymore. Like I wouldn't look at them. You would me. just like shout <laughs> an instruction without making eye contact. <laughs> I don't I would just sort of like mumble as I walked by. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's I shouldn't be laughing but like um You know, I had a short fuse. So, like, I would show someone how to do something one day and they would, like, do it that way. And then the next day they'd be doing it a different way. And I'd be like, why? I just don't understand. Like, why are you not doing it the same way as yesterday? (laughs) And I would just take the thing away from them and do it myself. There was a lot of that. Like, if you can't do this, like, I'm just gonna do it myself.
1: Oh, wow. That is a recipe for burnout real (laughs) fast,
0: huh? (laughs) Yeah. And that happening, like, a million times a day in a million different ways. It was just, it was brutal. It was really brutal.
1: If you could go back and kind of whisper into the ear of yourself at that time, would you have said, like, when the first note went up, it was time to start moving on, or like walk away because it didn't match with what the kind of environment you wanted to be working in?
0: That is such a hard question, Anne. And I still, you know, even sitting where I am now, I don't know what the right choice would have been. I put myself and like some of the people around me through a lot of pain by staying. Like, I felt so sure in that moment (laughs) and through those years, if I left, that Chris would probably—I was like, oh, he's going to have a heart attack and die if I leave. Like, I just had this feeling (laughs) of being so responsible for him and so—which is probably overblown, like, um, ego on my part. But I knew instinctively that I was carrying a huge burden, and I knew that nobody else would would carry that because, like, I wasn't getting paid that much money. There was nobody else who cared about Chris and about the idea behind this restaurant as much as I did. And so— In a lot of ways, the work itself and the environment itself just amplified all of my own sort of self-harming tendencies. And I was probably attracted to that because it was the way I knew how to be in the world, was just buckle down and work harder. So after about five
1: years, Echolo closes its doors in 2009. How did the decision finally get made to say, we're done here?
0: You know, by that point, I was basically, like, running the place with Chris. And so I was aware of all of the conversations. And by then, I had been begging him to get out for two years. And there were so many different little things that happened that, like, would give him a little bit more hope. This was the thing that his career had led to, was having this restaurant. So for me to say, let's get out, (laughs) was a totally different thing than for him to decide to get out.
1: It sounds like you weren't willing to leave just yourself.
0: I'd save your complex, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just, I don't know. You know, I was afraid. I, yeah, I was scared to leave, I think. Hmm.
1: I mean, I relate to that so deeply. (laughs) That's why I'm humming. (laughs) It's interesting how it can be this kind of self-propelled or like self-fulfilling prophecy once you get in a situation like this, and you can tell yourself that that's the way it's got to keep going, even though it's grinding you down physically, emotionally, psychologically. And there was this other thing you really wanted to be doing at the time, right? You
0: wanted to be writing. So even through all of the years of working at Echolo, like I every year (laughs) would apply to graduate school for different things, for like an MFA in poetry, an MFA in nonfiction, uh, like a journalism degree, uh, English PhD. I was always sort of like trying to figure out where it is that I was going and what I was doing. So staying at the restaurant wasn't because, I don't know, part of it was like, this is this thing that I'm doing. If I leave, I'll have to take a hard look at like, who am I and what am I going to do? And I've already invested seven or eight years in this weird career path. Like, it's scary to try and figure out what I'm going to do. And I would always, you know, I didn't always get into the schools that I applied to, but I often did, and then I would always just be like, well, do I have $90,000 to spend on a poetry degree, you know? So there's always something that sort of, like, talked me out of it, and I I would stay. I would think
1: that that would make it easier to leave. Like, if your passion isn't, you know, running a kitchen or things like that. I mean, were there any conversations with friends who were like um hello why are you not quitting and pursuing this writing passion like
0: no because most people around me were like how lucky for you to have found the thing you love food (laughs) (laughs) so as much as I somehow knew in my belly that that wasn't the thing I was working toward I think it's hard to be doing the thing that I had always thought I'd wanted to do which was to write wait why were you so scared to do the thing that you always wanted to do Um, I am a really methodical person. (laughs) I like to do my homework. I like to figure everything out before I, like, make a decision. And so here I had just spent my entire adult life, basically, investing in a career of cooking. And all of a sudden, you know, I was faced with the thing that, you know, since I was 12 years old, I wanted to do. I had the opportunity to do that. And I had no idea how to do any of it. When we finally decided to close Eclo, I just knew in my belly, I was like, this is my chance to go, like, be a writer. I had my freedom now, you know. But Mm. freedom is scary. (laughs) And freedom is a big, it's a big burden in a lot of ways. And um, so I took on rent at an office. It was $80 a month. Can you imagine? It was so terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, why was that terrifying? Because it was like an expense. Like, was I ever going to make enough money as a writer to pay an $80 a month rent? (laughs) You know? (laughs) And um, it's funny because, like, for all of those years when I was cooking, all I wanted was to have some of my time and energy going into some intellectual pursuit when all of a sudden all I had was me and my brain. (laughs) All I wanted was to also work with my hands a little bit.
1: So you and Chris, your old boss, started making food again, kind of at like a smaller, more informal scale. And you made pasta and sausages, which had been your specialties at the restaurant before. People placed their orders online and picked it up from you in person, and you called the whole thing Pop-Up General Store. And then what happened?
0: Really quickly, you know, our first ones were in December of 2009 and by February of 2010, there had been a ton of press and the mailing list that we had started with like 1200 names had jumped to 20,000
1: the way you talk about it is like almost un- without your consent it became this other full-time thing oh 100%
0: <laughs> yeah so within 6 months basically to go from a failed restaurant to this food business that all of a sudden like everyone wanted to be a part of it i was getting international press i was getting suddenly Credit for being like a brilliant thinker, you know? Like the amount of attention and sort of um business we were getting far outstripped our resources to run a business and, and feed people. This was me in my apartment <laughs> with an intern and an, and an assistant, like printing out labels on my inkjet printer. <laughs> it was just so sort of like held together with scotch tape and twine. Of course, I loved the attention. I loved that people were saying positive things. I loved that after Ecolo, like, and the heartbreak of it and the pain of that, that we could make basically the same food and get praise for it. I proved myself finally, <laughs> you know? I was finally valued for this thing. But it started to suck away all of my time and my energy. Yeah. I've been picturing
1: your writing desk, like, sitting empty in the in the co-working space.
0: <laughs> empty, yeah.
1: <laughs> Was there a day or, like, a specific moment when everything came to a head and you were just, I can't do this anymore?
0: When the woman from Marketplace came... It's the site of the Bay Area's latest foodie craze, a kind of farmer's market for specialty gourmet food called the Pop-Up General Store.
1: I'm not gonna say this too loud, but I came with
0: nothing but an appetite and a lot of cash. (laughs) I had a breakdown and I like started crying in the corner during the interview. It was like on a market day. And there were probably, I think, a 1,000 shoppers came that day. We honestly maybe only had enough food for, like, 300 people. So people were pissed that there wasn't enough food and, like, singling me out. And the ladies there with the microphone. And I was like, this is a disaster. Like, what have I created? That was a sort of a first alarm moment. You know, I had a lot of friends who were doing it with me. And I noticed that, like, I... Hated my friends and they hated me. Oh, God. And, and Because beca- I felt like they didn't understand the pressures that I was under and they were like, you're being really awful to us and not generous enough, you know. And so there, was, there were moments where I just was like, I don't want to go down this road. It felt so familiar to the ways in which I had been unhappy and passive aggressive when I was in the restaurant.
1: And did it feel familiar in terms of, like, literally how your body felt?
0: Yes, exactly the same. I dreaded it. I started to dread it. And now, by now, I knew what that felt like. I may not have been clear about what it was exactly that I did want to do, but I did know that, like, what I wanted to make in the world was a feeling of community around food and that I wanted to be happy (laughs) and I wanted to be creatively fulfilled and I knew I wasn't getting that from this project. I just started telling myself, okay, like, it's okay to end something and, like, not let it be a failure. You know, it's okay to control the narrative. It's okay for a business to have, or a project, to have a beginning and a middle and an end that I control. And only by choosing to say no to this thing would I ever have the space and peace of mind and clarity to ever get to do the thing that I really wanted to do, which was to write. And, um, you know, I said, OK, like by December, we're going to like December will be our last two markets and we're going to close. And and everyone like in the like gossip, everyone like food gossip, blah, blah, blah. Everyone wanted to know like what the juice was behind the story. And I just was like, there's no juice. Like, I just don't want to do this.
1: I would love for you to talk about what it felt like to be able to say The reason is, I just don't want to.
0: And it was the best thing that I have ever done. (laughs) It felt so amazing. I, I felt such sort of freedom and light. I felt so happy. And I just felt like a totally different person starting the next January. And because I said no to that, because I ended that, immediately all of these other things, all of the opportunities that led to me writing my book appeared. And, like, if they may have appeared earlier and I probably wouldn't have been able to do them or I would have taken everything on and then sort of crashed and burned.
1: What do you think would have happened if you hadn't quit, if you hadn't listened to that instinct of like, it's time to shutter this?
0: I just think I would have worked myself to the bone and probably into like an adrenal breakdown and instead of ending the narrative on my own terms, it would have ended as a failure.
1: Samine left her people-pleasing ways behind in 2011, and she sat down at that desk. In 2017, she published her first book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which became a bestseller. She's now a food columnist for The New York Times Magazine, and she even has a Netflix series, that's right. It's also called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. You can watch it now. Going Through It is an original series from MailChimp, hosted by me, Anne Friedman. These episodes are seasoned and plated by producers Eleanor Kagan, Megan Tan, Gabrielle Lewis, and Claire Tai. This episode was edited by Joel Lovell. It was scored and mixed by Hannes Brown. Thanks to the prolific Max Linsky and everyone at Pineapple Street Media. On the next episode, what happens when you've convinced the world that your relationship can be saved, only to realize that you don't wanna save it? And I remember looking at Tish, my middle child, and she was always the one that I thought, well, I could never leave because it'll break her. And I remember looking at her and thinking, okay, I'm staying in this marriage for her, but what I want this relationship for her? Best-selling author and activist Glennon Doyle had to decide if going through it in an unsatisfying marriage was better than blowing up her life to be with a person she loved.